to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and we've got a very exciting guest, much awaited, um, Jimmy Dunn. I first met Jimmy uh, three or four years ago at a slideshow I was doing, presentation in Colorado Springs, and I had known his name for years, but had never met him, and he's the sweetest climber you could really imagine meeting. He's an absolute legend, but I do think because of his lack of wanting to promote himself i think his stories aren't quite as well widely known as they really should be but now at this phase in his life jimmy's 73 i think he really does want to share his stories he comes from that generation i think where it was almost mandatory to be humble and there were certain outliers of people that did become well known that uh, maybe were less humble but he is just really this humble, gentle spirit. Didn't quite get to all the stories I'd like, I would have liked to gotten to with Jimmy, but um, there's this one legendary story about him driving down the highway like 70 miles an hour, and somehow he spots a tarantula in the middle of the road, and he slams on his brakes, and whoever was in the car with him was just like freaking out, like, what are you doing? And he pulls his car over the side of the road and gently picks up the tarantula and uh, sets it off the side of the road. So there's tons of stories like that with Jimmy. He's really just this gentle warrior and he is an absolute legend and his climbing stories are so much a part of our history and it was really cool to talk to him and and bring some of these stories to life. As you know, the best way to support the climbing zine is to pick up some of our products or contribute to our Patreon page. We really do need your support. We're trying to grow to a thousand more subscribers. I believe we're at like 275 right now. So we've still got about 725 to go before the end of the year. And our Patreon, I believe is closing in on $200. We're trying to get that up to a grand for the year. Pretty humble goals, but if people do support, we can continue to produce this content. My vision is that in the first 10 years, I really just want to get the stories out there and and build our audience. And now the business has taken shape. And as anyone who runs their own business knows that there's always higher expenses and there's always new costs. So the more you all support us, the more we can keep doing this. This episode is sponsored by Kilter. Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilter board. Kilter board has innovative light up holds, progressive app, and animated functions with climbs for all abilities. It also has two layouts to choose from with large online communities for each. There are over 50,000 problems in the original Kilter board layout, and the newer home board layout comes with over 4,300 problems. You can set, tick climbs, make shareable playlists, watch send videos, and even add your own. Kilter has multiple wall sizes and package options available, so we can help get you a Kilter board in almost any space. Check out Kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also sponsored by Osprey Packs. Osprey and the climbing zine share the same backyard. Located just down the road from Durango and Cortez, Osprey makes innovative, high-performance gear that reflects a love of adventure and devotion to the outdoors. High-quality packs for any adventure and season. We are proud to share a home in the Four Corners region of Southwest Colorado and the infinite outdoor opportunities that exist here. For more information, check out osprey.com. Hey everyone, Tommy Caldwell here. You know, 
everyone, at least in the climbing world these days, is trying to figure out ways to live more intentionally, to live a less impactful life. And one of the best things we as climbers can do to make that happen is to support and buy things from the companies that are doing the same thing, the companies that are figuring out ways to lower their carbon footprint, lower their chemical usage, make their products out of recycled materials, make products that just don't wear out. And, you know, the only company that's doing that well in the ropes and hardware space is Edelrid. They've been innovating the best products for over 100 years. They invented the sit harness. These days they make unquestionably the most high quality ropes, the lightest weight carabiners. And really, they're just awesome all around. So check them out at www.climbgreen.com. Without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Jimmy Dunn. All right, so I'm sitting here with my good friend Jimmy Dunn. Jimmy, how's it going? Pretty good, Luke, and it's good to see you, man. Tons of respect to you for all the stuff you're doing for uh, climbing. Rad uh, climbing zine, way cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a labor of love. And so we're sitting here in Pueblo, Colorado at your home, and uh, we just went to a really cool dinner last night to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Access Fund. And a lot of people have been asking me to interview you, and even Tommy Caldwell last night was really excited that he got to meet you. He started his presentation talking about how he got to meet you, so he was excited. Um, and we, we've been talking about, before we we turned on the mics, we've been talking about the 50th anniversary of your climb, Cosmos, on El Capitan. I thought it was really interesting when I, when I read that article that you said your mom clipped out of the newspaper. You were 22 when you did that climb, and you'd only been climbing for three years. <laughs> no. Is that not quite I'm true? Not correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> I had nothing to do with that article. Uh-huh. After the climb, <laughs> I was thinking about getting back into college, and I didn't know how to get back into college. I sort of wanted to, but it was easier to go climb the diamond with Billy West Bay than thinking <laughs> about college. So while I was climbing the diamond, actually it was a second ascent in May, snowy ascent, by the way, with Billy West Bay, my mother was doing the newspaper thing, which I didn't know anything about until <laughs> uh, later. And then she got the picture from two French folks, a couple, super nice folks. I don't remember their name, but they were super nice. They had an interest in climbing. I don't think they were climbers. I don't remember. After the climb, I was at the base of El Cap, sort of hanging loose and uh, whatever I was doing. And they were there, and we are talking about Yosemite, talking about climbing, and I told them what I had just done, and they got excited, and they asked me if they could take my picture. And I said, sure, but you need to send a copy to my mother, <laughs> which they did. <laughs> so let's, uh, well, let, let's go back to the beginning of the Cosmos journey, because I feel like Cosmos is a climb that maybe not a lot of people know about today, but it was a, a groundbreaking ascent at the time, and... You ended doing it, you ended up being the first person to solo a new route up El Capitan, right? That's that's the way it is. Yeah, that's what yeah. It was. Yeah. And so tell Still me uh, tell me how did how did it all begin, Jimmy? Like how did you really get the interest in this climb and what is some of the backstory like you were telling me earlier that Royal Robbins had tried it and Jim Bridwell had tried it and uh, so where did the, the journey really begin for you with that climb? It began when I was Wanted to do a first ascent to El Cap for some reason. I'd been climbing 
for six years, not three. Okay. I started in '66. <laughs> the newspaper article was uh, yeah, was incorrect. Yeah. 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 So you've been coming for six years. Yeah. 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 Six, six, six years, which doesn't sound like that long actually, but I guess maybe I was motivated. I don't know. But and Billy Weston had done a first ascent on on the Diamond the year before, and I was wanted to do a first ascent on. In, on, in Yosemite on El Cap, on the Diamond in Colorado, and a big wall in Zion, which I did in 74. Mm -hmm. But about El Cap, I don't know how far back I should go, but I'll try to make this brief because it might not be that interesting. Uh, I was planning to go to the Black Canyon with Michael Covington to climb uh, on Casimview Wall. And, Michael, and you were going to school in, in Gunnison at the time at Western State yeah, College? Yeah, at that time, I well... That was that was a year after Western State. Okay. I was going to UCS, UCCS in Colorado Springs, uh -huh. which is now University of Colorado. Right. Colorado Springs campus. Yeah. So we, we had a spring break I th for about 10 days. So I thought, great, let's go out to the Black Canyon. Billy Westbay and Stuart Green were going to come along. They were going to climb something in the black. Michael and I were going to try the nose of the chasm view. So then, unfortunately, Michael had broken his leg, uh, taking a fall while he was soloing on a cliff not on the diamond, but near the diamond. So he was finished. He couldn't go. So then I thought, well, I'll just join up with Stuart and Billy and have fun. There'll be three of us. Then I thought, I think I, maybe it was all of us thinking this. I don't remember. But I remember thinking, well, why don't we all go to Zion? It's just a little further. We'll do a, we'll do a big wall in Zion. That'll be great. Then I thought, well, Yosemite's just a little further than Zion. Let's go do the Muir Wall. That sounds great. The three of us will do it. And then I was, well, I was studying. I was still in school studying. I had a microbiology class, which um, I didn't understand the teacher. She was okay. She, I think she was a nun, a lady nun. And I didn't quite understand. Maybe I didn't have the ba enough background to understand what she was talking about. But or maybe I was just drifting in, into my climbing <laughs> head. Uh, I had a photograph of El Cap, and I noticed a line that didn't have any, a, 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 a line of cracks that didn't have any dotted lines on it, hadn't been climbed yet. And it looked, it looked like it would go just from a picture. So I was, and then I talked to Billy about it, and Billy was up for it. Mm -hmm. Billy Westfield was totally up for it. So then we changed up, now we changed our plans. Billy and I were gonna try a new Brunel cap. Stuart and Douglas were gonna try the NA wall. Billy and I had just done it the year before. So all good. Um, we finally sh set off in Stewart's 1972 Gold Vega, uh, driving out to Yosemite with a little bit of money, not much money. When everything was going well until Winnemucca, we got pulled over for speeding in the middle of the night on a road that was straight as an arrow. It didn't really make sense to any of us because we weren't really speeding. If we were speeding at all, we were going just a little bit over the speed limit. We didn't, it wasn't in the city. Basically, what it was was uh, an officer that needed extra money. That's <laughs> what I'm thinking. Uh -huh. He came up with his thoughts that if we paid him cash tonight, that <laughs> night, we could, we could be on our way. If we didn't pay, we'd have to wait till tomorrow. So he said, it's probably a good idea you just pay up and get on your way. Uh -huh. It wasn't much, $30. So that, that sounds like a scene out of that movie uh, Easy Rider <laughs> when the yeah. cops are like targeting so, them and throwing them in jail. It was similar. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, some of us were inside the police station, which was kind of a small little rinky dink building. The others 
of us were outside waiting. And some of us came up with a brilliant idea. Let's get even. So let's urinate <laughs> through the open window, onto a seat, onto the steering wheel, and we'll teach them a lesson, which we did. So, so, so when the others came out, we all four of us got together. We were sort of long-haired bandanas. You probably didn't like our kind to begin with. Um, so I, I said, we better go, you guys. Uh, we got to get out of here now. And we all agreed we better go now. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't look back. We just kept going to Yosemite. And was this then you're, you made your, your guys' first attempt on Cosmos? Because it took you, you had four attempts before you, you, you did your solo attempt on it? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So we got to Yosemite. We're in good spirits. Uh, we're in the Lodge parking lot, racking up for our climbs. Billy and I were racking up for the new route. Stuart and Douglas were racking up for the NA. I remember. I always remember slicing my finger on a razor blade cutting webbing. I was in such a hurry, I was so amped up. No big deal. It was kind of a kind of a nasty cut, but I just taped it up and we we uh, proceeded uh, to the climb. And and Billy and I uh, got up maybe three pitches. I think I was on the third pitch, leading the third pitch, when we both heard, I may have heard him first, <laughs> a mob of climbers, it was a group, five, six, maybe eight, yelling up at us. And at first, I didn't understand what was going on. Then I realized they're really yelling at us. At first, I wasn't sure. And then they were saying things like, I'll, I'll always remember these, what they said, come down now, you're going to die up there. If you keep going, we're going to go home and get a gun and blow your balls off. Jeez. And then we said, well, we're just talking back and forth. Well, well, actually, this all started after the third pitch. Well, it went from when I was leading the third pitch into the pitch when Billy, the next pitch that Billy was leading, the fourth pitch. And when Billy started up the next pitch, they got they sounded even more aggressive because they knew they they saw we weren't coming down. That's when they that's I believe that's when they mentioned they'd go home and get a gun. And then when we kept going, they said if we make it to the top, they would meet us on top and throw us off. Jeez. So that night in in a in, in, a, in a slings belay, I was talking to Billy about these guys sound really mad, uh -huh. Billy. It, it was uneasy. It was like a uh, very uneasy feeling, not knowing what to do. Billy, Billy felt uncomfortable. He he wasn't. He he felt a little nervous. So that night in a hammock bivy, we decided the best thing to do is to come down, get out of there, let them have it. If they really want to do it, so be it. You know, I don't know. They, I don't know who they are. And they, um, you assume that they were pissed at you because you were Colorado climbers and they were California well, climbers. That's what I heard from our friend Jim Danini. They. They were, uh, and and then when we got back down, Danini said, "Why'd you guys come down?" Well, I told him about the screaming climbers. He said, "Don't worry about those guys. They're, they don't even want to do this route. They're on the nose right now. Uh, they're just upset, mostly because you're outsiders from Colorado doing a Yosemite first ascent on El Cap." So he said, "Get back up there. Uh -huh. Go for it." Um, I'll, uh, I said, well, what about if we get to the top and make it? What, what if they uh, meet us on top and they threaten to throw us off? What, do you, what, what about that, Jim? And he said, don't worry about it. I'll meet you on top. <laughs> His exact words, I'll throw them off if they're up there. 
So I thought, well, cool. We got some backup, uh-huh. which is totally weird because you think, you know, you're in college, you're out to the spring break, you want to do a wicked climb, and you're dealing with this thing that's going on, this energy. But we just said, okay, I'll go. But before I said that, I was thinking, well, actually, I was thinking I'd go, but uh, Billy decided he wanted to go back to college. He said, I think he had, I think he had, had enough of those guys yelling, and he thought if we kept going, if we continued, we, uh, we'd probably all have to bail out of college. We'd have to quit. And he was thinking he wanted to go back to school. So the next thing I did was because Doug Snively and Stuart Green decided not to do the N.A., they didn't think they were prepared, although I thought they could do it. I, I'm the one that talked them into going for it, uh, but they didn't want to do it. So, And Stuart wanted to go back to school as well, and Doug Snively wasn't in school. He just graduated from high school. And I asked him if he wanted to climb. And I said, well, I'll, I'll go up in the N.A. with you, Doug. And then, then he, again, <laughs> he was around me a lot in those days. He said, Jimmy, you just did the N.A. with Billy the year before. Don't do it. Go up on the new route. Don't worry. I'll meet you on top. If they're there, I'll throw them off. So, so be it. It sounds good. Let's do the new route, Doug. So... We made a deal with Stuart and Billy that if we were going to come down by maybe, you know, it's hard to remember the exact time because it was 50 years ago, but if we came down at a reasonable time in the morning, maybe 10, we'd all go back to Colorado. And so Doug and I went up, spent the night looking up at the, looking up higher and thinking uh, the climbing didn't look that easy. I was still a little worried about the, the, the climbers. You know, I didn't know if they really wanted to do it. I didn't know if. It was their route. I don't think anybody had claimed it, actually. Uh, I know I heard rumors that Jim Bridwell was trying it, and he would break anybody's arms and legs off if they went up on it. I don't know if that's true, but those are the rumors that were circulating in Camp 4. This is very much a territorial kind of scene, way more than it is now. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And we're outsiders. Uh-huh. So... so <laughs> Doug and I decided, you know, we had we had eight drill bits and they were dull. And we looked up and thought, this looks this looks pretty desperate. Maybe we should just get out of here. Let those guys do it. I'll go back to Colorado. I'll go back to school and I'll climb later. So we come down at ten or eleven in the morning. Walk back to Camp Four. Where's Billy? Where's Stuart? Oh, they left. <laughs> they left at six in the morning for Colorado. <laughs> Oh, boy. So here, Doug and I are in Yosemite, no wallets, not even not even five cents, no extra clothes, no nothing. And, and you know, what do we do now? Well, here comes Danini again. Hey, you guys, <laughs> you need some money? So he gave us $100 for a bus ride. So we go back to Colorado on a bus for two days. We had enough money for tickets, and I bought about four pounds of dates. So all we ate for two days were dates and drank water. Go back to Colorado, get, get, back, tr- get back to school, which only lasted about an hour. <laughs> I remember walking up to the front desk. I just couldn't get into it. It just didn't seem like uh, this, you know, thought of uh, not doing that climb. Was yeah, getting, it, it consumed it, you. It was getting to me at this point. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, good wording. Mm-hmm. I was getting consumed. Yeah. I was more consumed with that than I was consumed with school. Mm-hmm. So I brought my books up to the front desk. I always would buy, usually for one subject, I'd buy two books 
to get two different viewpoints of the same subject. So I had this big arm of books and just said, I remember my words, why don't you give these away? I don't need them anymore. I'm out of here. <laughs> that was it. I was gone. Uh-huh. Goodbye. And that's when you went and, and did your, your solo attempt? Oh, no. Oh, no. No. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so this oh, is no. still oh no 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 still no, building no. up to that oh no yeah there's more yeah so I called Doug Snively he's living with his parents called his his mother and said hey is Doug there he's in bed can you get him up I gotta tell him something so she gets him up hey Doug you want to go back let's go and he said he was up he was totally up for it 18 years old uh, totally up for it not many people know about Doug Snively but everything he did was absolutely incredible. He was he was like a super young hardcore Colorado Springs climber mm-hmm. to the max. Mm-hmm. So here we go, my hundred fifteen dollar, nineteen sixty Chevy Impala, ball tires, and shocks were worn out. Driving out to Yosemite, and I had forgotten this about five years ago. Doug Snivy said, reminded me. Do you remember every time we got a flat tire, we'd stop at a gas station, and you know, we change the tire wherever we were. You go to the next gas station, fill up the <laughs> gas, and buy another two dollar tire. <laughs> so basically, we drove to Yosemite on two dollar tires. So we get there, and nothing had changed. Nobody was on the new route. Um, so, and and Jim, Danini was there again. In fact, I could never figure Jim out. He's I know he was a Green Beret, uh, and. He really, really got addicted to climbing, and he got to be a super climber. And he was, every time I would show up in Yosemite from 68, 69, 70, 71, and 72, both spring and fall, he was always there. Mm. He was he was a regular. Mm-hmm. So he was there, and he was excited we were going for it. And th- th- then I, I think that time I had heard that Jim Bridwell was in Zion. He had flown with one of his planes, one of his friends in a private plane. So nobody was on the new route. Jim Birdwell had, was in Zion, so I thought, great, let's go. Let's just go do it. Let's mm-hmm. get it. Let's get it. So we, we go up on the climb, and, and d- as Doug was leading the third pitch, he pulled off a block. And I don't remember the block coming past me, but I sort of do. Um, but I remember he broke three fingers on his right hand, and his right hand was complete red blood so he knew he knew that he was finished he couldn't mm-hmm. he was done mm-hmm. so it's funny I, you think that I would have remembered that block but I just remember it was big but I don't remember it flying by my face I was I thought about it a number of times right because I was below him yeah so it probably happened but uh-huh. I just don't I just don't remember that right I just for some reason so we get to the, but I do what I do remember we get to the bottom we get to the base and as, as we're looking at each other, and we didn't talk about, does it hurt? You know, what are we going to do? Um, all I remember is we didn't say a peep, and there were tears rolling down his cheeks uh-huh. because he was so bummed out that he yeah. couldn't climb. We talked about it year, 25 years later, and he said, yep, I was really, really bummed out mm. that I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So so be it. So we head down the trail, and here comes Jim Burrow up the trail. And he was probably the last person I wanted to see right. on the face of the earth. Uh-huh. <laughs> Luckily, at the very end, we became very good friends. But at this point, I didn't know him. I just knew his. what <laughs> I had heard, and it may be true and it may not be true. But he was, but he was walking up there for a reason. He knew we were on the route. Uh-huh. He wasn't. He wasn't bird watching. 
Yeah. <laughs> the bird wasn't bird watching. Yeah. <laughs> he wanted to see what we were up to. And uh-huh. he asked me, so what are you guys up to? What you, what's going on? And Well, I didn't want to talk to him, really. I just brushed by him and said, well, nothing really. Um, my friend broke his fingers. We can't climb. And I just kept going. Uh-huh. Doug was in back of me. So I, don't, I, don't, I never talked to Doug about what he said. Uh-huh. And Doug and Bridwell became very good friends later in life as well. So, yeah. But it was funny. We didn't know him then. Right. And we were just kind of sketched out with, with him. Uh-huh. So anyways, um, a couple of days went by. Uh, I, I don't remember if Doug, how Doug got back to Colorado. His fingers were broken, but he, I think he took a bus back. I was still in Yosemite. I asked a number of people. I asked, I asked Danini. I asked a bunch of people if they wanted to do it. Everyone said no. Nobody wanting part of it. And I wasn't really thinking about soloing it then. I was just wondering what to do because I hadn't really ever soloed a big wall. I don't think I had ever soloed aid. I had done some third classing, free climbing, but I'd never soloed aid. So mm. it wasn't like my thing. Yeah. So out of the blue, Gordy Smale shows up. Gordy and I had talked about our first Sentinel cap the year before after Billy and I did the fifth descent of the NA. And Gordy uh, was, is from is from Vancouver, British Columbia. He had done all the El Cap routes at that time. There may be one that he didn't do, but I remember I remember he had done like the NA, the South A, the Muir, uh, the Dihedral, the West Buttress. Maybe it was the West Face he didn't do, but he had done all of them. Um, so I asked him if he wanted to go up on it, and he was a little hesitant. And what happened was, after Billy and I did the NA, and we had talked about a new route when I, I left Yosemite, well, he stayed in Yosemite to do some more climbing. He had fallen on the slack at the base of El Cap, a very bad fall. Um, I found out a little bit about it years later from Dick DeMay, who was there um, and helped rescue Gordy. He took about an 80-footer or maybe longer, hit a ledge on the way down, um, and Dick DeMay, Chuck Pratt, and a Scottish climber, I forgot his name, uh, were drinking, getting drunk at Degman's, and along came Mead Hargis, who was also from, I believe, from Vancouver or maybe from Washington. He was a Yosemite Ranger at this point. So Mead said, there's a rescue, we need some help. So they went up to help, and there was Gordy on the ground, broken pelvis, and you better be sitting down to listen to this. Dick told me when they showed up, Gordy's testicles had blown out of his scrotum, <laughs> and Chuck scraped them back in with a stick. Uh-huh. So I hope you were sitting down for this one. <laughs> uh, that was a, and then Gordy hadn't climbed for almost a year. He was recuperating in South America, he told me, on a beach, just resting. And he was hitchhiking back to Vancouver uh, and decided to stop in Yosemite. That's when I asked him if he wanted to go for it. He was, he was 50-50, and I persuaded him. I kept saying, we can do it. I know it'll go. I've been up there. It looks good. Well, um, I talked him into it. He didn't have any gear. We had to borrow harness, shoes, haul bag, hammock, everything, which we did, and we went for it. We got up about nine pitches, but on the way, the fr- it might have been the first day we got up nine pitches. But along the way, he took two falls. One fall is when a rope ripped out, and he took about a 30-footer, and 
it was not a big deal. Then I went back, I went up and led it with cliffhangers. I just went on the, the scene with cliffhangers. So, I mean, Gordy was okay. And then next fall, a couple of pitches higher was uh, one I don't like thinking about or talking about because it's one of the mis big mistakes I've made in my climbing life that's beyond stupid. There was a thin crack, and I had used copperheads on the NA the year before, used on the A4 pitches. So there was a the pitch I'm talking about on, on this new climb, I uh, used maybe 15 or 16 or 17 carpet heads in a super thin crack. Um, at the top, I placed the bolt halfway up it, uh, and then it did more carpet heading. And at the top of the crack, I placed an inch and a quarter angle that was solid. It was the first solid thing I got in for uh -huh. 80 or 90 feet. So then the next part of the pitch was a downhanging flake, sort of an expanding wide flake, mm -hmm. maybe two and a half, three inch, three, three inch type bong crack. Mm -hmm. And when I was leading it, halfway out it, I fell. One of the bongs ripped out. And, the, and it was probably about maybe 45 or 50 feet from that angle at a, at a maybe, what is, what is this angle, 30? What is this angle? Is yeah, that? yeah. Maybe 30? Yeah, I'm not great with angles, but either. yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't, I mean, it was, so I led down 40, 45, 50 feet. I placed an anchor. In those days, it was always, it was unwritten. You would place two bolts and not three. Uh-huh. Five bolts and not six. Well, I placed one bolt for the anchor. Uh-huh. And I had a number two, it could have been a number three hex, about a foot or two to the left of it in a crack, it was probably maybe an A2. It wasn't perfect, but it was good. Mm -hmm. That was the anchor. Mm -hmm. I pulled two haul bags up. I was on the bolt with two haul bags. And Gordy cleaned the pitch. He got to the angle, which was solid. It was welded in. When he got to the angle, he, uh, got, on the, he got off the angle. I told him to leave it because the crack is expanding. He's, and I'm, his last words to me, he got on the first maybe two and a half or three inch bong. The, his last words were t to me were, don't worry, I can get it. As soon as he said that, the bong pulled. Oh, jeez. He went flying upside down past me, probably 60 or 70 feet. Jeez. Mumbling as he came by. Uh-huh. And he fell onto the bolt. Oh, my gosh. And I was on the bolt, and the hallbacks were on the bolt. Yikes. I remember putting both of my palms in my hand on the bolt, pressing into the rock as hard as I could press. Jeez. That's insane. It's stupid. All right, we're back inside now. It got a little windy out there. <laughs> so you're, uh, we left off. You were holding the bolt in oh, <laughs> yeah. with your hands. I was just telling them <laughs> privately it was yeah. beyond stupidity. So... But we all we all make mistakes in our in our climbing career, right? Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully we uh, don't pay for those mistakes too badly. Right? Yeah, yeah. Anyways, that was then. I wouldn't do that now. We, Luke and I just talked about we'd put three bolts in, right? To make it safe. <laughs> yeah. So we, so we could live the climb another day. That was stupid. Uh -huh. So, anyways, um, I was pushing the bolt in with both hands. Gordy fell directly on the bolt. Two haul bags, me and Gordy taking sixty footer maybe on the bolt, mumbling upside down. His harness didn't fit. His harness almost—he almost fell out of his harness. Jeez. It wasn't good. Yeah. Gordy yelled up, "I'm going down." 
I don't want this. I'm going down now. Mm-hmm. So I, so I, there was no talk, no change in his mind. It was, you know, his decision. I understood. But I said, well, do me one favor. Before we get down, can you blame me on the next pitch? I want to see what it looks like. Which she said, okay. So I put two bolts in, or maybe three bolts, a little short bolt ladder up and left. Did a pendulum over to some face climbing, and then face climbed up to a small ledge at the base of an incredible dihedral, about a 300-foot dihedral, that I always thought, man, this would be a killer free climb, this, this one section. is like an inch and a quarter crack. So he he blamed me. I went over to that to the to, I did this pitch and and I remember yelling over to him, "Hey Gordy, this looks easy now. We can do it. You want to go? You sure you want to go down? I'm going down. I don't want this. I'm out of here." So that was it. Mm-hmm. I came back and one thing that's interesting when we came down, instead of repelling over to where that thin crack was, we repelled at an angle down um, um, to the belay. And then when I went back to solo the climb, I just thought of this, actually. I had forgotten all about this. So when I went back to solo the climb, I didn't have to do that wicked A4 plus, whatever it was, corner with the copperheads. I did this sketchy face that looked like it wouldn't go at all, but there was just enough nubbings and a couple little edges to put hero loops. And so I climbed, I think they call it I'm not even sure. I think they saw it one time in Jimmy's Variation or something on the topo. I'm not mm. sure. But anyway, so I did this wicked that it was probably pretty sketchy, but it wasn't nearly as sketchy as uh, the, the carp heads. So that's how I got back to that anchor. And I think I might have put another bolt in, but I don't remember that actually. Because when I did solo it later, I was putting bolts in upside down because I figured out that when you fall soloing, the pull, the the, the the pull. The direction of pull, yeah. The direction yeah. of pull is going mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. So I put my bolts in upside down. Mm-hmm. And I was figuring whoever does this climb next is going to think this is weird. All the bolts are in upside down. Right. <laughs> so anyways, uh, we came down. And at that point, I felt really, really possessed with this route. For the first time in my life, I felt like, th- and this is an easy statement, but I always remember this. I sort of told myself, I'm never coming down off this climb ever for any reason unless I die which is not it's not it's not a smart statement but that's my attitude then I changed my mind about halfway up now I was thinking I shouldn't be here I should get out of here Roe Robbins didn't do this Jim Bridal didn't do this Yvonne Chouinard didn't do this what do they know that I don't know up higher they have telescopes they're your 70 regulars then I started getting worried. Then I thought, then I recreated that statement about I die. And I was thinking, that's the stupidest thing I ever thought. You know, all this was in my head. I wasn't talking. Mm-hmm. Right. It was thoughts in my head yeah. ricocheting around. Mm-hmm. So, and then I thought, well, <laughs> it's easy to say that statement. But when you're in that s- situation, then it's different. Yeah. So and I, so when you, uh, when you were up there on your solo, what were some of the trials and tribulations that you had? up there um on your on your the attempt when you finally did it like uh, what did, what did you go through on that on that journey well uh it was nine days i dropped my my half bag the first day it started to get windy and kind of 
like it almost looked like it was going to rain. So I took my hat bag out uh, of the hall bag to get something warmer. It was getting cold, and I, I dropped it mm. right away, which was a mistake. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Um, up a little higher. And so uh, what was in that bag that you dropped? <laughs> just a, just the, the half bag. Which is like a... A half bag is like a sleeping bag. Okay. Half, that goes up to your waist. Gotcha. So, it, yeah. so in other words, your jacket is the top part oh, of the Oh, I see. Bag. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if people still do that. No. It was sort of, <laughs> it was sort of a... Maybe it was sort of a thing to do. Yeah, yeah. But, and I remember looking down, seeing this little red dot as I was freezing. Yeah. And were you sleeping in a hammock? Well, I had a, a, a two-point hammock that ripped right away. Uh-huh. So... I ended up sleeping, and I had I didn't have climbing hall bags. I had army duffel bags. I had two army duffel bags. I du- I think I doubled them because they weren't very strong. So I ended up sleeping in a in a duffel bag, hanging mm. like, <laughs> which was not that comfortable. It doesn't because, sound like comfortable. <laughs> no, it wasn't comfortable at all. And also, it got pretty cold. I ended up climbing uh, in my down jacket, which was it was a Hollyer bar jacket. Just the next model down from the expedition, so it was a good heavy jacket, and I never took it off day or night. It stayed on me for the whole climb. Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to my hall bags as if they were people, <laughs> explaining things to them. Yeah. And then there were some silverfish. They're not insects. I'm not sure what order they are in the insect in the in the animal world. But I remember talking to them, asking them how they were doing it. They were rolling past me down the vertical cliff. They were sort of just spinning down, talking to them a few times. You know, not just once, but I saw them periodically, and I'd always uh-huh. talk to them. Uh-huh. It's totally weird when I look back at it. Yeah. Totally weird, but it was something to do. Yeah, like the coping mechanism of your brain. Like, that what uh, it is? is yeah. that what it is? Well, I've, you, that's what you see, like the, like the Tom Hanks <laughs> the movie when Tom Hanks uh, gets on the desert island and he has this volleyball that he names Wilson and he starts talking to the hat. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it well, sounds like something like that. Well, that was exactly it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. exactly it. Uh, and and the- so you were on the wall for nine days solo without a sleeping bag on your final push. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you. And then at one time, I, you know, I had two ropes. And there were a lot of times you there'd be when you went to the belay spots there'd be a lot of ends coming down a lot of strands coming down. One time I hooked into the repel. I got set up to repel to the to the hall bag to pull it up. Well, I I I, I got set up in the wrong strand. I got set up in a strand that was only twenty feet long and it was just dangling in space. And I got down about three or four feet, and it wasn't. An, I, I thought I was on the right. Hall line. Hall oh rope, yeah, and I was on the wrong rope. Oh my gosh! So I repelled down a few feet, and I, I, I sort of it felt light, mm-hmm. and I looked down, it was just dangling in, in space with no knot in it. Yeah, and I immediately wrapped the rope around my leg and put a jug on it. Uh huh. <laughs> that was one mistake I always remember. Yeah, getting on the wrong rope. Uh huh. And then I, br- I had two hammers because I, you know, as I said, I pretty much convinced myself I wasn't coming down for any reason. I had two hammers. I broke one. I broke the head off one. Uh, the hammer I was using about the middle of the climb. I ended up. Uh, um, I think I was pretty scared, to be honest. I was hitting. I'm sure. Yeah. I was hitting lost arrows in, with two hands, and some of them, a lot of them, 
you couldn't clip with carabiners anymore. Mm. The, the round eyes were ovals. Mm. You had to put a hero loop through the eye. They mm -hmm. clipped the carabiner into the hero loop. Mm -hmm. So I was basically welding the lost arrows. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I broke the hammer. Uh -huh. So I remember that. Um, anything else you... Yeah, I mean, so when you when you eventually get to the top, you, I mean, you've just been suffering, it sounds like, oh, and just getting uh, I, by on the wall. and yeah, I, yeah. Oh, another thing. I remember falling one time, grabbing the rope as I was falling. I fell a couple times up there, but one time when I fell, I grabbed the rope with my right hand, and when I stopped, I uh, opened my hand, and I could see the blood vessel sort of starting to create blood flows watching them in slow motion mm -hmm. I got pretty bad rope burns mm -hmm. I always remember that then another time I remember for some reason both my jumar the gray old fashioned bird watching English jumars slipped on the rope yikes I fell about 10 or 15 feet oh man and I sort of banged one of them with my I think it was probably my left hand and I, it caught me mm -hmm. so there were a few things that happened that were a little sketchy. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I think it's all real. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like it's, it, I'm pretty sure it's all real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so uh, eventually when you top out, um, isn't that kind of when you, you had a, um, you you finally made a man, or you and Jim Bridwell kind of became friends after that because. Well, when I got to the top, Jim Denini said he was he'd meet me up there. Uh -huh. But when I got up there, it was really quiet, like super quiet. And the only thing I saw was a peregrine falcon looking mm. back at me. There was nothing, no sound, no people, nothing. Yeah. And I thought, wow. Then I realized that was the first time I'd actually realized I'd soloed a first NL cap. Up until then, I never thought about it. So when I saw this peregrine looking at me and nobody was there, I started walking. I real, as I was walking, I, I, thought, I said to my, in my head, not talking, in my thoughts, wow, I just sold a first ascent on El Cap. And then I walked into a tree branch, face first. <laughs> then I came back to my reality. Uh -huh. <laughs> I didn't, I, and then I thought, well, what do I do now? Yeah. How do I get down? Uh -huh. And so when you, when you got down, you, you did run into to Jim well, Bridwell? When I got yeah. to the ground, I, and I went down a really funky way, I went down the west side across Ribbon Falls, uh -huh. which was a little dicey. And I, I, I took one rope, three or four carabiners, two or three slings, and that's it, thinking I could work my way down um, through the bushes at Manzanita. It was, it was a real hassle. But I finally get down. I was all beat up. My hands were so swollen, I couldn't really close them. So I'm walking back to camp, and there was Bridwell, the first human I saw first human Jim Birdwell mm -hmm. in Camp Four. Mm -hmm. I thought I wasn't—I was too tired to worry about it, but I didn't—I felt uncomfortable. He walked up to me, and I thought, "Oh boy, what's he going to say?" I'm half thinking, and he shakes my hand and says, "I'm impressed. Let me cook you supper." <laughs> That's amazing. And that was it. We became good friends. And what did he make you for dinner? <laughs> It was I know onions and potatoes and and I don't there's no meat. Uh -huh. I was a vegetarian then. Uh -huh. There's no meat. I remember uh -huh. that. Uh -huh. It was all like 
for it wasn't elaborate yeah it was something that tastes good because yeah all i had was that wall stuff uh-huh and that was probably a very nice gesture that you appreciated too oh, it was huh? great yeah yeah it was great yeah and yeah it was a great gesture yeah. yeah good way to put it and then a few days later we were hanging out and he said so what are you gonna call it and i said well you know i never thought about it you know i'm you know what if you did it because i knew he wanted to do it right what were you gonna call it if you made it and he said well i was gonna call it the cosmos really well what do you think so i'm up for it let's yeah. call it the cosmos yeah so he he said thanks so he yeah. named it it was his name oh that's super cool and so in this area you're also um i mean you're you're definitely known as a desert you know, Indian Creek pioneer, your, your name is on so many routes and canyon lands and arches and in different places. What made you kind of fall in love with the desert and, and what was it like to be one of the first climbers to be climbing in Indian Creek? Well, I started climbing at Garden of the Gods. My first taste was sandstone. Mm-hmm. Actually, the sandstone in the garden is much worse than any, pretty much any rock in the desert. Yeah. <laughs> when we got to the desert, climbing some of those cracks, this is great. This is great sandstone. It's nothing like a crumbly, sandy, soft stuff in the, you know, slippery stuff in the Garden of the Gods. So, so that got me excited. Then another thing that got me excited was uh, the Ascent magazine, the 1970, the article by Steve Roper and the article by, by, um, Chuck Pratt. Mm. Have you seen those? Um, no, but I... Oh, you haven't? Well, I don't know if I have, but I, I believe I know what you're referencing. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'll show them to you. But yeah, that, yeah. I, I looked at those pictures hundreds of times. Uh-huh. I read those articles hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. In fact, in 1970, Dan McClure and I, my good friend Dan McClure, who actually was one of the people with Jim Danini, going back to the cosmos, met me on top. Both those guys went up on top to meet me mm-hmm. with a bottle of champagne. Oh, wow. <laughs> but they, so they did, Jim Dini did what he said he was going to do. But for some reason, when he was on top and I was on top, we didn't see each other. Oh, so you missed, you didn't that. cross paths. I don't understand Oh, man. That. And the only thing I saw was a peregrine. Uh-huh. <laughs> if they were there, the peregrine probably wouldn't have been there. Right, I yeah. So I don't, but they were up there and they drank the champagne. <laughs> and from there, later... Um, well, I had been through Moab in 1969 or 1970 after I, I'd climbed, I'd climbed the nose of El Cap uh, with Andy Ambeck. Uh, so on the way back, um, I, I got a ride with some people from Boulder. We went through the desert, and I could not believe all the walls around the river. Uh, all the we went to Fish Towers, went to Arches, and I said I got to come back. Mm-hmm. So that was the start of my trips there. Mm-hmm. Then I came back with Stuart Green in 19. 19- 71 in September and did and did um, uh, the sixth ascent of Castleton Tower, Coringles. Oh, wow. Okay. And then the next day I was at my uh, my high school friend came with me. He had never climbed in his life. He was into yoga and vegetarian. He's the one that got me into yoga, mm-hmm. being a vegetarian, which I stuck with. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had never climbed in his life and, and it was hot. It was over 100 degrees. Stuart was sick. He got uh, heat stroke and I said, well, Stuart, if I can, I talked Dan, who had never climbed in his life, not one second. So I said, Stuart, if, if your shoes and harness will fit Dan, can you borrow them? Sure. So uh, we put the shoes and harness on Dan, and his first climb of his life was North Chimney, 
which is which is the second ascent. Oh wow! And he hit, on Castleton. And it turned out his yeah. first climb, his last climb, he never climbed since. He <laughs> no never kidding. Climbed before. Yeah. So I thought it was pretty cool. It was cool. the second ascent of the North Chimney. Never climbed before. Uh-huh. Then the next year, no, that no, that was September. Then we came back in November. Billy, uh, B- Billy Westface, Stuart Green, and I came back and did, we did the first ascent of. Uh, of uh, West Face of Castle then. Mm. And then we went on to do the third ascent of Standing Rock, which we had to rebuild the road. There wasn't a footprint. There wasn't a tire track. It was like, you know, for us, it was pretty out there. The White Rim Road. Yeah, it was yeah, out yeah, there. Yeah. 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 And then we did No Six Shooter. And when we did No Six Shooter, I remember seeing Super Crack, which we didn't name it. Super, it wasn't called Super Crack. I'm right. Not, I'm not sure if we really named it, if it just became Super Crack. Right. Honest. Yeah, because Earl originally called it, Earl luxury. Wiggins originally called it Luxury Liner, right? right? Yeah, right. yeah. So I walked up to it, and I remember yelling down to those guys, you won't believe it. These cracks are better than what we're climbing in the towers. Uh-huh. And they, you've got to come up and see this. So they yeah. came up, and that was that was sort of the beginning. Although... We didn't. That wasn't climbed till year, which I didn't. I wasn't part of it, you know. Actually, I was. I was there. I was you were there. To, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. supposed to do it. Earl and I flipped a coin. Yeah. He won, but th- we had like ten friends with movie cameras, and I, and then I guess I can say this. I guess I can say this, but one of my friends, maybe I shouldn't mention his name, but asked me if I want to do some LSD. Right. <laughs> do you know what LSD is? Yeah. You do? Oh, yeah. 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 You're old enough? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fine to mention. Absolutely. <laughs> so you were, you were on LSD while they were doing... Well, <laughs> the, Dennis the first and Earl's wife crack. were doing LSD and asked me if I wanted to join them. I said, uh-huh. I'm not sure, but they have to... So when it came to, came, came time to climbing... Uh, and you took a picture of... Earl that was on the cover of uh, the climbing zine yeah. um, with Earl right. leading up super yeah. crack for the first ascent right. with his hexes and right. Um, right. no sticky rubber climbing shoes no. or no leg loops no. or anything. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I, it's a yeah. great photo. Thanks. Yeah. But so anyways, I, I wasn't sort of in the mood to climb. Yeah. And then when they got up, they said, Jimmy, you should come up. And I thought, yeah, yeah I, mean, I remember I was with Cheryl, Earl's ex-wife holding a, a lizard was walking on my hand and I was thinking <laughs> the lizard and they asked me to climb and I thought and I, and I said Cheryl put your hand out and it walked on her hand I just I just didn't do it yeah yeah yeah. it would have been fun to join those guys but it didn't do it it wasn't it wasn't happening no it didn't need to uh, do it yeah I'm glad they did it it's so cool they did it yeah it's really cool they did it you spent a fair amount of time in Indian Creek in those early days well actually yeah. maybe the first climb at Indian Creek, maybe, I'm not sure, but David Beckstead, who actually climbed more with Fred Becky than anybody mm. in the world, that David was telling me, he and I became friends in the early 70s. One of our, when we first met, we went down there, looked, just hiking around, and we did a first ascent, and he came up with the name, I didn't figure this out till years later, but he called it Procrustean Crack. Okay. It's probably five nine, and if I looked up Procrustean crack years later, and I thought, well, what, what does this mean? I mean, I didn't know what it meant, and he came up with the name, and and I believe the meaning is you change your style to fit the institution. Yeah. Okay. Which means he yeah. probably thought it was so unusual yeah. the climbs he did had a whole different style to fit in with a new institution. Yeah. So yeah. He came up, and that climb, I don't know where it is. I asked David a number of times for the last 10 years. He doesn't mm. know where it is. I said, we should go out there and find it. Yeah, that would be fun. And yeah. it, 
Yeah, we should look for it sometime. That would be great. Yeah, that like may rediscover been, your... That may have been... Yeah. And we may have placed one bolt for the anchor. I'm not sure. Uh-huh. I don't know if I down-climbed it. It was probably 5.9, 5.9 plus. It was sort of a sweeping chimney. Yeah. Cool. And it was, it was close to... It was close to Supercrack or... We didn't, we didn't venture very far. <laughs> yeah. You know, we didn't venture very far. You didn't from, have to. <laughs> no, we yeah. didn't go very far. Yeah. From Supercrack or generic crack area. Yeah. Really. Yeah. And so in this era, you guys are, I just want to paint the picture for our listeners because most of our listeners are younger people and especially some people that didn't even know people climb there before cam. So the cam had not yet been invented. Your, well, your, your ropes, I'm guessing, were nylon ropes, but they were shorter. So your gear is, it's like hexes and nuts and, and a predecessor to a cam that was like one, one or two lobes or something. It was, or, I think yeah. it was one lobe. Uh-huh. I think, <laughs> I think <laughs> Ashley... I think Earl had it on his rack. Oh, really? I'll show you some slides uh-huh. I have of Earl because I took more. Yeah. When I was when I was taking pictures of him, there's a few, and I think one of them shows the low cam. Uh huh. Which yeah. I'm not sure if it worked. Right. <laughs> or sorry. if he even placed it. Huh? Sorry, yeah. Jeff Lowe. <laughs> yeah, Lowe. yeah. Sorry. Rest in peace, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. And so you also didn't have sticky rubber on your climbing shoes. You just had boots, right? I think there were EBs. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Is Earl, what's Earl wearing in that picture though? Because those aren't EBs, are they? Actually, I'm those not boots. Sure. I'm not sure. Like some, it looked like they had like leather on the outside. Well, what we always did because they were canvas, and the out we would, we we would um, cut out a pattern of leather around the outside, oh. and we have it stitched on so the outside canvas was now leather so that you wouldn't wear through. Gotcha. Okay. So we always did that. And I always, yeah. I always would paint or draw Amanita mushrooms uh-huh. on mine. <laughs> nice. I was climbing one time, soloing past somebody, and they saw my, my uh, mushroom. This is hilarious. They saw the mushroom drawn on my shoe, and they said, Are you Jimmy Dunn? Well, yeah. Well, yeah, well how do you, what do you mean? How do you know? I saw your mushroom on your shoe. <laughs> totally they associated totally you with hilarious that. yeah and what was earl like as a as a climber and human being driven yeah serious yeah oh yeah he he was real serious yeah and he was i never dan and rickler and i have talked about this we both thought we were stronger than earl but somehow earl had this knack he would just keep going and going and going he was just like f- totally fearless mm-hmm tenacious too huh he would stick with it yeah yeah i was bouldering yeah. with him one time and he couldn't get up a problem and he just walked into the problem with his arms out with his chest up against the rock bouncing into the chest to bouncing into the rock and he couldn't <laughs> do it wow <laughs> and uh i haven't told anybody that story uh, <laughs> and so he uh he he went on to kind of write the first documented guidebook for the indian creek area oh, earl did no I don't or think uh he what was he didn't write that first one that was like uh canyon country cli- or something canyon climbs or wasn't he one of the first people to document oh, it because yeah he... that wasn't a guidebook but that was a book yes okay it was like a, a regular book yeah, that was a, a, t- a coffee table book coffee table book with some documentation or yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah have you yeah. seen it um i don't know if i've ever seen it i just think i've just heard of it i'll show you a copy yeah yeah that would be great yeah yeah um, but we, we talk about the Indian Creek a lot on this podcast. It's probably the climbing area that we talk about <laughs> the most. So it's kind of interesting to get this history of 
you guys being there and and you were like what, what did you camp in the fringe of death canyon yeah, area we camped we camped by uh, those big boulders down there, there was a yeah, by yeah. The road and if you drive in if you drove in there was a big boulder with a with a really cool um crack that tips and it sort of sloped a little bit do you know that boulder uh, I've only been back there once when I climbed Y Crack, which was one of your earlier yeah. climbs. Yeah, yeah. So you you guys were camping back in in this uh, area just past Super Crack called the Fringe of Death, which is where some of the first climbs were, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I actually called the whole area Fringe of Death. That okay. was that was my name for the area. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, we we did, I I was doing a climb with Earl. I think it's called the Fringe of Death climb. I think. Um, and he kept going, and it was like inch and a quarter crack, and he put, you know, a stopper in the little constriction and kept going. And I, he was just above me, and I just sort of stepped around the side out of the way because I thought, he's going to fall and die. Mm. And I just looked up and looked at his feet, and he kept jamming and going and going. I thought, man, he's on the fringe of death right now. He's, you know, and I remember slowly walking around the corner, like 15 feet away, so he wouldn't hit me. Yeah. Oh my going. God. I know. That was. And I thought this. These climbs are the fringe. They're on the fringe of death down here. Wow. Yeah. That and was, yeah. No cams. And often, what would would you like try to get to the top and then walk off, or would you place bolts? Or I think I placed maybe two bolts for protection, but we tried our best not to place any bolts. Mm-hmm. We tried our best not to place any bolts for anchors, if possible. We tried to go to the top. Yeah. And we did have one area. I mean, we're talking 45 or 50 years ago. I don't remember, but there's one area that I remember. I may have put the slings there. We would walk to the edge where there was like a shallow chimney you could slither down, and there was some chalk stone, boulder chalk stones in the crack, and we we put two or three inch webbing slings around the chalk stones. We could wrap one wrap down. Uh-huh. So we, that's how we got down. Yeah. We didn't have we yeah. didn't wrap from the climbs, but. I did say this to Eric Bjornstad. He may have put this in one of his books. I always remember telling him that someday, Eric, this is going to, these are my exact thoughts. I'll never forget it. Someday this is going to be a real famous area for people to work out. But I never really said for climbing. I remember I didn't say for climbing. I just said for workout because it's so intense. There's so many climbs. People are going to get in killer shape here. Yeah. That's what I told Eric. Like, 50 years, 45 years ago. That's that's such a accurate statement because... I just knew it. And that's a good transition because, you know, we have our mutual friend, Andrea Hassler, who uh, actually was going to... I wanted her to be part of this interview because she knows you well. But she was saying how much you really focused on climbing training early on, too. Like, you were, you were just showing me you had built... Um, artificial cracks in what was that probably like the early 70s or something like that? No, 78. 78, so yeah, yeah, late 70s, the year I was born. (laughs) But uh, you were, you were really into training and what, what were, and you were, I mean, training is what so many people are into now. Um, Some people that's like their only identity in climbing is they train, 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 and there's none of this counterculture lifestyle stuff. But you, you also had the counterculture lifestyle, but you were an early person who trained. So what at your your peak of your fitness, what, what were your training regimens looking like? You were soloing and, and doing laps and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like laps a lot. Because yeah. I remember watching the Olympics. Uh, 
gymnastics, especially women gymnastics. I used to like to watch it. And they, these girls, well, even the men too, would do the same move thousands of times. I thought, wow, I thought that was interesting. I thought, what if we do the same climb 500 times and just get this rhythm down? We get stronger and stronger. You do it twice, and two months later, you can do it 15 times with no pump. Mm-hmm. So I always, thought, I always thought like that. Interesting. So you got some um, inspiration from, from gymnastics. I think so, even though yeah. I never did gymnastics. I never did that, yeah. that organized. But, I, but it just made sense to me to do that. Yeah. And bouldering. I, like, I never could do the hardest boulder problems our friends could do. They always did harder problems, but I would like to do one. Like I do one like 26 times in a row. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they would do one, one. They would do one. I couldn't get off the ground on it. <laughs> yeah. And so what about some of the indoor training stuff? Like, did you feel like that really helped you with fitness and um, like climbing on artificial cracks? And you're probably one of the first people to do that. Well, I did. uh, Well, to this day, my left ankle still doesn't bend. Mm. I took a fall ice climbing in New Hampshire, North Conway, on repentance. Um, And I, yeah, I couldn't climb at all. I couldn't even have the, I was on crutches, actually, to be honest. So what, I came up with an idea. I, well, I wanted to do pull-ups. And I thought, well, instead of just doing pull-ups, well, I'll make a hand jam pull-up bar in the door jam. So I got some braces, <laughs> nail, screwed or nailed uh, some brace, some brackets into the door jam and put two 2 by 10s next to each side by side, parallel, parallel to each other, in the door jam. And I would do pull-ups with hand jams, <laughs> not on a bar yeah so i thought well this is pretty cool this is my jamming then i thought well why don't i just go up in the attic i was the director of the ems climbing school at an office on the second floor so why don't they just go up in the attic nobody's using it it was a lot of room up there so i i hauled up um carried up about six two by 12 16 footers one by one on crutches I didn't tell anybody because I thought if I told somebody, like the management, they would shut me down. Uh-huh. So I thought, you know, better be stealth-like and just go for it and see what happens. So I, I don't even remember people looking at me, but I'm sure it looked kind of strange. Somebody on crutches dragging 2 by 12s up. So I ended up uh, building some uh, jam cracks um, that were uh, 2 by 12s uh, 16 feet long, and hanging from the ceiling of the attic. And I was the only one doing it at first. And, cause I, you know, no one really, I didn't talk to many people, didn't talk to anybody about it at the beginning. So then I actually went from 16 feet long to 30, I put two of them together. One was at a 45 degree angle and the other was vertical. Um, I mean, it was uh, horizontal. So then I had 32 feet going. Well, a few times I hit the floor on my back because it was up pretty high and I'd land flat on my back on the wooden floor. Yikes. So then I thought, yeah, yikes. So then I thought, well, this is the hotel. What's on the second floor where my office is? And I sort of, I don't remember exactly what I did, but I got hold of some keys. And I opened some of the doors. And when nobody was looking, I thought, nobody's in here. I'll just take the mattresses. <laughs> so I ended up lining it with mat- with old crummy uh-huh. mattresses yeah. in the hotel beds yeah because nobody was i mean it was d- shut down uh-huh so i think eventually the hotel the owners of eastern eastern mountain sports probably didn't like their mattresses because they were going to reopen it at one point <laughs> yeah 
So that and made it easier. Yeah. Hitting the floor with mattresses. There were like pads, like bouldering pads, basically. Yeah, and you were telling me today that you 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 trained pretty avidly up until what you're kind of mid sixties or like you were still going out and training on eleven C cracks and, and and doing laps on, on stuff like that. Yeah, 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 which is nothing compared to all you new climbers. Which is well, really I, I think it's it's really interesting that you you were climbing hard up until your your mid sixties or so, which is really impressive. Yeah, thanks. Like, yeah, thanks. yeah. Um, I got a taste of hanging out with you guys though in right, yeah. Durango. I got a taste. I got a taste. Yeah. Of what it's like hanging out with you guys. Yeah, you're you're always our. Uh, I got clobbered. <laughs> our special guest. Well, yeah, special guest got clobbered. Yeah, Durango. <laughs> Durango steep climbing is. Uh, Durango. It's kind of in your face. Yeah. <laughs> I also want to talk to you about the Black Canyon because you were, um, you know, and people kind of learning about you through this podcast. I'm sure a lot of people know your name um, from guidebooks, and then in your era, you were just a a very well known person. Um, but when I think of you, I think of your career in Yosemite and I think of your career in the desert, but I think your name in the Black Canyon is also, you, you've done a lot of things there and, and you've told me some crazy stories over the years of climbing there in the summer and, you know, you, you climbed there before cams were invented and I think you and Earl probably had some, some epics there <laughs> where you guys like used all your gear, but um what are some of your kind of favorite memories well, of your Black one, Canyon one of the, era? One of the cool things I remember, Earl came up to me and said, hey, Jimmy, we can free climb the Cordalki. Oh, really? Because I knew about it. He was in the first climb, edition of the first climbing magazine uh-huh. when climbing came out, 1970. Oh, really? Where, how do you know that? Well, I just climbed with John Short and another friend, don't remember his name, we just did the second ascent of the Goss Logan, and the last four or five pitches are on the Cordalki. And I looked down, we can, his exact words, I looked down, Jimmy, we can free it. Mm-hmm. I thought that was wild, because I never thought of freeing, freeing that wall. Yeah. So we set off. It was on off, the North Chasm wall. Yeah, North yeah. Chasm view. Yeah. Yeah. So we set off. I think Jeff Lowe was with us, maybe, maybe Mike Weiss. They were going to do something else, and Earl and I were going to do the, the Cordalki. We brought with us two peanut butter sandwiches, two uh, quarts of water, and two rain jackets. Because <laughs> we didn't know it, it had been done in two days. Yeah. We didn't know if we could free it. Uh-huh. It's just, and we had, I think we had, because it rated 510A4, so I think we had like one rope, maybe a knife blade, maybe a cliffhanger, I think. I'm not sure. I think, we, and we had a small Chenard blue teardrop pack with us with a maybe a nine mil or seven maybe a nine mil haul line so we uh ended up going for it and we free climbed it in about six hours and we thought we both thought oh wow if we didn't have this pack we could have done this in four hours wow and we were surprised that it went you know it was earl's idea yeah. actually yeah yeah so it's pretty cool that this guy thought of it hats off to and that's uh, is that what was that what became the cruise yeah we didn't name yeah. it okay but it was but we told our friends we just cruised the Cordalki. yeah and in fact i had lunch with Leighton core later had breakfast in boulder and we were talking he said and he had the butter knife up to my throat so you <laughs> rename my climb <laughs> he started laughing yeah, yeah that's all right i'm glad you did it it was hilarious what was Leighton core like he was great 
Yeah. Now, I understand. Yeah, he, he was great. I mean, because we had heard Stuart and I and Billy, it was Leighton Core this, Leighton Core that. Everything was Leighton Core was like unbelievable, you know. So when I got to hang with him, it was great. And he was, he was uh, for me, it was really easy to be around, super, super easy to be around. Now, Steve Camito, mm-hmm. I told that to Steve Camito. Yeah, boy, it's a, tr- it's a pl- treat being around Leighton. And Steve said, you didn't know him in the 60s. <laughs> He was ruthless. When he was just so driven. He was so yeah. driven. Yeah. He was ruthless. I mean, he would do anything to get up a climb. And and then I was, which is true, I would tell my friends, if someone gave you a year or two years or three years and enough money to do it, go repeat Leighton's climbs that he did. You know, it would be, I mean, what he did in 10 years is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, he only did like a 10-year thing. He didn't right. do like 40 it's a good point, yeah. He did like 10. Yeah. Like, and the, the desert, nobody there. Black Canyon, yeah. nobody there. Then he did stuff in Europe and Dolomites and uh, El Dorado and Diamond and yeah, pretty, pretty rad. Do you think you had a similar drive with the Cosmos and your other climbs to Leighton Core did? Or do you think he was more intense than you? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I know I like getting up things. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Leighton was easy. He was, uh, it was great to be around. I was um, driving t- t- to uh, Arizona about, I don't know, 10 years ago. No, longer than that. And I stopped uh, at a rest area. It was snowing. And I pulled over and I woke up in the morning. There was a foot of snow on my, on my Volkswagen bus. And there was a semi-truck with this f- snow on his windshield. We were talking. And I asked where he came from. And... He said, uh, oh, I just came from Boulder. Oh, really? I said, I used to climb up there in El Dorado. And he said, yeah, I used to live in El Dorado. Really? That's cool. And then I said, then he said, well, so did you, I, oh, I, I said, did you really climb? He said, yeah, one of my best friends is Leighton Core. I'm not, a, I'm not a climber, but we were really good friends. I said, really? So then I said, well, that's wild, because a couple months ago, Leighton signed his book over to me. And said, it's great to meet a legend. I saw him at Leighton called me a legend. Then he said to me, wow, that's like being called a son of God. <laughs> <laughs> it was a trip. So, Jimmy, you're, uh, you're 73 now, right? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. you're, you're exactly 30 years older than me, like yeah. almost to the day. Wow. My birthday is December 2nd that's and yours right. is December 4th. So you're, we're like exactly 30 yeah. years apart. Wow. Um, what is, uh, what does climbing mean to you now, um, that you're in your early seventies? Uh, what's your relationship to climbing and, and your community? Well, I went to the access fund with, with you and some Bob play and some, some great friends. And it was pretty inspiring to see these great climbers who, are uh, doing a lot to help climbing. It was like inspiring. It was like awesome. And I think you agree. We both were like stunned. We hadn't either of us. Neither of us ever had ever done that. Yeah. And it was, it was incredible. And it made me feel, to be a small part of it made me feel great. You know, it made me feel really good just to be there, uh, to listen to them talk, to see the different people that I had known of for 30, 40 years, and maybe some I had met once, you know, ages ago, or some I had never met. It was, it was, it was great fun, and. I'm not climbing these days. Um, 
I keep, as you know, since I've talked to you, I keep threatening to work out, but I haven't done it. <laughs> so you're going to think that <laughs> no hope for me. There's no Well, hope. you did, uh, at one point you told me you did like, you could still do like 20 pull-ups in a row or well, something. I just did 15. I yeah. Did, but that was, that was when I first met you. Right. Well, yeah, that was, I guess it's been a few years. Yeah. But which, which, you still probably got some fitness in there. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah. So I'm not really climbing now. And my wife, Ashley, is sort of, sort of, um, Encur- not even beyond encouraging me, she's sort of pushing me to the, th- to the point where I should go climbing with Charlie Joe, and she wants to climb. Yeah, so I'm the one that's not doing it. Mm. So, well, let's let's make that happen. Um, yeah. What uh, any any message to the younger generation of like you spent your life climbing, and you you were dedicated to climbing so much. Um, do you have any like thoughts to the younger generation of people that are just now? getting into climbing and like getting obsessed with it. Cause we all know you can get obsessed. Like, do you have any like words of wisdom to oh, the man. younger climbers? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I look back, I guess part of climbing was for me is being outside, you know, it's hard to, you know, walking by cactus flowers in bloom or, you know, the primrose in the desert, which you've seen many times. I'm yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a giant part of it. I mean, it's good doing the roots, and but it's part of it is like seeing the lizards and um, just really being one with just... And my friend Chad, who you met last night, we always talk, part of climbing is like every step outside you take towards a climb is like, seems like perfection. Mm. We talk about that all the time. So you got to remember that being there is, uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's pretty exciting being driven and like, you know, you want to do a first set you just want to do it no matter what. Yeah. It's exciting. I don't know. Why, why is it exciting? Right. I mean, it's kind of <laughs> desperate. Your hands hurt, your feet hurt. Yeah. It's kind of dangerous. I mean, then you think, uh, you know, are we crazy? But, <laughs> but it's pretty cool. Right. And if we were, since we're all crazy people or a lot of us, what would we be doing if we weren't climbers? You know, we'd like, probably get in more trouble. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah. climbing is pretty cool. Yeah. It's definitely cool. And yeah, I can't even begin to understand how good, like you guys, you're, you're, I saw your clan in up and you were making these climbs look like they were like nothing. I thought, oh, I'll just waltz up these things like these guys. <laughs> They're easy. <laughs> I tried them. And what you guys were hanging on to, like, they seem like they were big handholds when I looked up at you, <laughs> <laughs> but they weren't that big. Yeah, and and those were really our pump. local climbs we've done a million times. I know, too, but it so, was yeah. pretty exciting. Yeah, seeing how strong and how driven your your group, how driven you you guys are, and how much you like it, how much you care for it, and how much you want to keep climbing good. You know, do the good things for climbing. You know, with Indian Creek, Bears Ears. I mean, it's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, well, really we're standing cool. on your your guys' shoulders, so. yeah well thank you jimmy oh yeah that was really fun yeah yeah cool that was my conversation with jimmy dunn every time i hang out with jimmy we just keep going on and on and it seems like every time i'm leaving his house he's still telling me another story i'll be like sitting in my my driver's seat he'll start telling me about a new climb you know, Jimmy, like like many of us, is very concerned with the state of the world, and I think that was the last thought that he really portrayed to me um, while I was leaving that day. Is like we we got to do things to uh, sustain our planet, 
yeah, just encourage everyone to do what you can to try to make this a better place for everyone alive now and, and our future generations. And um, I think Jimmy, that's his big takeaway from his 50 plus years of his climbing life is that we got to continue to fight for our natural environment and things are looking pretty grim right now, but it doesn't mean we don't need to continue to fight. Music for this episode comes from Devin Dabney. Devin's got an awesome podcast as well, The American Climbing Project. We are also going to be putting out a mixtape together very soon, the Microdose Mixtape. Now that we got volume 22 uh, about to the printer, and I uh, wrapped up my film with The Queen, um, we're going to start diving into this Microdose Mixtape. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. Be sure to check out those links in our show notes to our sponsors and as well to pick up some goodies from the climbing zine. And from beautiful but windy and dry Durango, Colorado, I'm Luke Mihal signing off. Peace. Peace.